0: Welcome to Bad Patient, I'm Robin Donovan, and I'm Laura Marker, and we are two non-medical non-experts taking an unreasonably deep dive into this week's health news.
1: And this week's words are TV, nature, gene tests, and gut microbes, and we're going to be answering the questions about a study that looks at if sleeping with a TV can make you gain weight, how much time we need to spend in nature, how new gene testing can work for fighting infections, and how gut microbes bond to different foods. But weird. Was that good? Does that make any sense? I don't. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Okay. You're just gonna be I like, I'm not. I don't feel like I'm good. <laughs> it's it's great to be like you're like this is <laughs> what we're gonna tell you because now
0: everyone knows. Now they have a reason to keep listening. Okay.
1: Our first story comes from Lad Bible Study finds that falling asleep with the TV on could make you put weight on. So it's looking at a new study that was by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, North Carolina, who studied women between 35 and 74 who previously had no history of cancer, cardiovascular disease, and made sure that they didn't work shifts and they slept sleep in the day and weren't pregnant when it started. Um, And they self-reported the amount of artificial light that they were exposed to at night, including from phone screens and TVs. Um, And those for women who slept with the light or TV on were 22% more likely to put weight on This could be because of lack of sleep makes you hungry thanks to hormones that are released when you're tired, or sleep simply means, shorter sleep simply means more time awake, therefore more time to eat.
0: Because God knows if I'm awake, I'm eating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There are other factors like exposure to artificial light at night may be reflective to unhealthy behaviors such as eating badly, sedentary lifestyle or stress, or socioeconomic disadvantages. So it could, it could impact your, your weight. Do you, do you look at your phone in bed? Because you don't own a TV. (laughs) No, I don't own a TV, but I watch Netflix. Yes, I do sometimes look at my
0: phone in bed. However, I have an iPhone and I use the, the night shift function. And on my laptop, I use the Flux app. It's F-L-U-X and it, automatically shifts the color temperature based either on when the sun goes down or you can set it to do it for certain hours. And so it gives me an orange background light that like eliminates the problem of blue light, which changes your your circadian rhythms, causing your body to think that you're like, that it's daytime. Still, I would argue that probably screen time is not good right before bed, right? Even if it's like... My body knows that it's nighttime. Mm-hmm. I think there's something mental about watching TV for me that it doesn't – I don't think TV helps me unwind. I think it just pauses whatever is happening. So if I'm feeling kind of worked up and, like, worried, and then I can watch TV for an hour, I won't feel worried for the hour. But as soon as I turn it off, I feel exactly the way I felt right when it was starting. So I don't know. For mm. me, it doesn't doesn't help that much. So I guess I believe this. Plus, I bet it's also cause-effect and effect-cause because people who are – staying up late watching movies instead of going to sleep might be having other problems right Mm -hmm. what are the life factors that make you feel like you need to numb yourself instead of just going to sleep you're stressed you're anxious you're depressed you have a difficult job your relationships aren't going well you don't feel connected is it any surprise that those people are gaining weight no is it surprising that i'm not gaining weight possibly
1: (laughs) What do you think? Do you watch TV at night? How I fall asleep is listening to like a book on tape. And I also have the shift screen thing. I don't really know how effective that is. That should be something you should investigate. That should be a medical fascination. I'm just saying you should do it. Okay, I hate to tell you this, but I have investigated this. And I talked to a light
0: researcher about it. And I went like I went to a conference session about light mm-hmm. and like immunity. And it really is like blue light, even a little bit. Your brain, your brain interprets that as it is daytime and you start producing different hormones and stuff that totally shift. They alter your ability to respond to like immune system threats. It's, it's really wacky. Mm -hmm. Like it, it made me want to take my phone and just like throw it out the window.
1: Okay. I, I believe that. And I feel like I knew that, but does the sliding the bar and making it look yellow really stop it being blue light? Is is that really effective? Um, I th- I. think so. That's my question. Yeah. Is, because like, is, I don't know. I, more recently, I live alone now and I sometimes am scared in my own house. And so I will sleep with the lights on but with a eye mask on. So I don't know what that would qualify as because it's a very good eye mask and it feels like dark, but I know the light is on, but I don't know if like my body can sense it if my eyes are deeply covered. So what does that mean? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, I think actually that sleeping with the eye mask on is the best option because it blocks out all the light. And we know part of sleep hygiene is making it as dark as possible, making it cool, making it this, making it that. I don't know. I'm I'm not a good person to ask about this because right now my bedroom curtains are of the makeshift variety and I really want to get blackout blinds. <laughs> but here's what happens. I work and I have friendships and people that I care about and I exercise and then I have things I have to do and then I have 10 seconds of free time and I think, oh my goodness, I could buy a washer dryer or install screens or get these blinds, you know, like an adult would do and then I think but I could take a walk in the sun or I could go swimming or I could perfect my peanut butter cookie crust pie recipe which is coming along slowly but surely and 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 then I never I never do these things so I'm the wrong person to ask that's
1: a great segue that's a great segue to our next article sweet (laughs) and it's from the New York Times and it's how much nature is enough 120 minutes a week doctors say so I need a lot more nature so, than that. Well, researchers can now quantify the ideal amount of time needed to reap health benefits from the great outdoors. It's two hours. People who spent two hours a week outdoors reported feeling healthier than people who didn't go out at all. Five hours yielded little added benefit. Okay. We've known that green spaces and being out the outdoors is good for you, but we didn't know like how long or how much it, to have. I hate this. Why? Because I
0: feel like it's the with time outside, I feel like it's the more the better. And I understand this is good for people who are time starved, but I hate the idea that someone would be like, oh, well, there's no point in going outside. We were already outside for two hours on Saturday, so we'll just, like, we're good.
1: Well, no, it's not that it has to be two hours on Sunday, therefore you can't go out again. It could be, like, 30 <laughs> minutes a day, totaling 120 minutes. It doesn't really matter how you Qualify the time. That's how much you need at least. Okay. And there's not necessarily added benefit for additional time. But like... Mm this is like the minimum that you need to do in order to have it so this is looking at a greater scope for public health where in korea they have a wooded areas and re- in cities and like making sure that people have access and so in like sweden they even which has like a very outdoors focus culture like you know that they you know bike and they commute that way so that they are there are doctors that are prescribing outdoor time to improve your health Oh, I love it. How much do you prescribe people for, though, is the question. And this, this answers that question. Hmm.
0: Okay, yeah. I, and I guess if you're getting zero, it is helpful to know how much do you need to get a benefit. Because they also say in here that 60 to 90 minute, minutes doesn't confer much benefit. But, oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm hoping I can be outside for two hours today. I was outside I know, for, you live
1: in Portland and yeah. you, you cray. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Man, yesterday I went to, quote, the beach in Portland to do a little swimming, and it was 96 degrees. And it turns out that other people also like to go to the beach and swim, and it was jet skis and people and sailboats and motorboats and this person stuck in a boat on this and that and currents, and some of us were slightly distracted during our swim. But still, that's fair. It was a good swim, and it was like 64 degrees... I feel like it was a little cooler in the middle, but yeah. So I got out after an hour and I was like a little cool. It was kind of nice to feel like cool, but it's hot outside. I feel like I'm just not interesting today. Like I hear myself talk and I'm just like, this is is (laughs) not of interest to people. Like what the hell? All right. Get some exercise, go outside. Though I was going to say the healing forest thing reminds me of that Japanese concept of forest bathing. Have you heard of that? It's just where you like, w- like wander in nature and like allow yourself to like absorb the excess oxygen, blah, blah, blah. Have you heard of
1: that? No, but that sounds...
0: I mean, I think it really truly is healthy for you. It's... I agree. Yeah. Shin- Shinrin-yoku probably not pronouncing that right, is taking in the forest atmosphere or forest bathing developed in Japan in the
1: 1980s. So there you I go. Know. The more you yeah. know. The more you know. All right, Laura, what is our next story? So our next story comes from AP News, and it's new gene tests for germs quickly reveal the sources of infection. So this is looking at how we're using gene tests to test not just like necessarily like your uh, genetic illnesses that you might have, but also using it to try to to find and detect what's causing an illness in a more quicker fashion. Because, like, typically what you do is you, you know, create a culture and then you have to let it grow and then you see what comes up and then you test that. And that's how you decide what's, you know, what is causing the illness for a person. But during that time while you're waiting for that to let that grow, that means that you won't be able to, you know, treat it. So this is creating a new, new way to test it. So... By identifying the germs faster and give them the right treatment, it's it can help revolutionize how we do medicine. Uh, the major issue is that it's very expensive to do. <laughs> oh no! How much do they say? Uh, it's it's like two thousand dollars a test. So. I mean, that's like a CAT scan yeah. in a
0: hospital, right? So, true story, true story. One time, I got a, a CT scan. For $250, and the hospital quoted me $3,300. So that's a, that's a thing.
1: Yep. So, yeah. So this gives like a story of a person who um, had been hospitalized, and they weren't sure why. Um, they were a, for- uh, a healthy, a 40-year-old was suddenly on um, life support, battling pneumonia, and subsessus, and a slew of tests failed to figure out what the cause was. It's caused um, by a bacteria, and they were able to identify it that way. So... Um, they think with more, uh, more regular testing, it'll help drive down the cost and make it more regular. Um, so the there was a study, a New England Journal study, um, that tried a uh, spinal fluid test on 204 children and adults, um, trying to figure out what it was. It did miss some cases, but it also found uh, others that were missed by standard testing. So in all, 58. Infections were diagnosed, the gene test matched the standard labs in 19 of those cases, 13 more than the standard um, test, and then missed 26 that the standard test eventually found. So um, oh. it's another tool to add into the toolbox of, like, you know, we can do it more traditional ways, but uh, it can also be in a, added into it as and become more standardized testing that way. So.
0: Wait, so basically, like, the standardized, standardized test... Yeah, the standard test found like about half, a little less than half, and then the the gene test found like another third or something. Mhm. Yeah. Okay, so our mil- our million dollar business idea could be if we come up with a test that finds them all. <laughs> yeah. So that could work too. <laughs> and we're definitely set up for that after this after doing this podcast for a few months.
1: Absolutely. Um, We're going to take all of our proceeds, of all of our ad revenue, and just invest all of that, right? Like, that's what you do. (laughs) I also would like, I I would just
0: like to take a moment to focus on the fact that this guy ended up on life support, essentially because he choked on a little bit of a hamburger, and some of this weird, unusual bacteria got into his lungs, and then he almost died. I mean, how, maybe that should have been the story. Manimals dies from infection caused by choking on one bite of food.
1: That's shocking. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah.
0: All right. What's our last story? So our
1: last story uh, comes from Fizz, and it's gut microbes respond differently to foods with similar nutrition labels. So this is looking oh. at um, a paper that was published in the Journal of Cell, Host, and Microbe, um, where they research observed participants' diets and stool samples over the course of 17 days Um, and they correlated, suggested that there would be a correlation between what they ate and what was happening in their guts of microbes would be pretty straightforward, but that's not exactly what happened. Uh, they had 34 participants, um, and by doing daily stool samples, uh, it allowed the researchers to see at very high resolution how different people's microbes, as well as their enzymes and, uh, metallic functions, they were influenced by the food, Um, were changing day to day in response to what they were eating. And it provided a resource for analyzing relationships between dietary changes for how the microbe changes over time. Um, And so having someone who had ate um, a lot of kale one day or like lettuce or spinach and then had um, other types of vegetables um, like carrots or tomatoes had a very, very big impact. So even though we would label those... um, items as like vegetables and not like disseminate necessarily further. That's not the whole story.
0: This is weird because, yeah, they said what two people in the study consume nothing but soylent, which is that which is that meal replacement powder that they keep trying to sell us all on Facebook. And now I'm going to get ads for it because I just said it and my computer's listening to me. <laughs> Damn you, Facebook. But their people who ate the same thing every single day. their Their gut microbiome still changed from day to day. So it's, like, other things are influencing it than just food, which is insane. Also insane is the fact that, like, I feel like these stories keep saying your gut bacteria can influence what diseases you get. But they have found, like, correlations between different, um, like, bacteria presence and the development of things like multiple sclerosis. Meaning, Mm. I mean, I feel like this is one of these, like, big frontiers of like medicine moving forward is like figuring out gut bacteria because right now we have no idea we have no idea like how to get how to get more types of it we don't know because like sometimes you can like repopulate your body but then like you don't have the right conditions to support that bacteria so it's going to like die off anyway and so i think uh ha ha, more research needed which is actually also the last line of this study but but think about think about if if you were like, "Oh no, I shouldn't eat onions because MS runs in my family and I need to like promote this type of bacteria in my body." I would just love to see us have a closer relationship between like medicine and food and you know, I would love for my doctor to actually care what I eat instead of just caring about what I weigh. Cuz really, mm-hmm. this is this is a whole huge thing and like this is like a tangent to a tangent, but if I just eat pop tarts, but I maintain my weight and I don't develop any new illnesses, like my doctor's not going to ever know that, ask me about that or anything. It's only if I had like a gut problem that they would say, "Oh, like what do you eat?" And you know what? Even when you have a gut problem, like when I was figuring out that I needed to be gluten-free, I didn't get that many questions about my diet. No one cared, especially if you're like on the thin side. They just assume that everything's fine or they just don't care, you know? Or like I had a period where I got bronchitis a bunch of times in a row. No one asked me about like my diet or stress levels or stuff. So, I think this is fascinating. I feel sorry for whoever was collecting stool samples every seven, 17, every day for 17 days from 34 people. It's a lot of poo. <laughs>
1: mm.
0: Yeah, poor grad student. <laughs> I know. I mean, and some of this stuff is, like, not that surprising. They found that spinach and kale might have a similar influence where, like, carrots and tomatoes have a very different impact. Because they're saying, quote, even if the conventional nutri- nutrient profiles are similar, but it kind of stands to conventional wisdom that a carrot and a tomato would not have the same impact right they're like totally different foods so i don't know but i think the thing about if you eat the same thing every day and your your microbiome still changes it's like okay so what's that about is it about like is it about stress levels is it about like hormone fluctuations is it about sleep is it about like like the brain body connection is it about like bacteria that you're encountering in your environment like what is that about we need to get these people on the phone (laughs) That'd be great if you're like, oh Robin, we have this person right here. Here they go.
1: Well, I'm so glad you said that, because that segue is great. <laughs> uh-huh. So what is your current medical fascination?
0: Well, so I've been kind of thinking about like a long term physical adaptation. So I'm thinking about doing an Iron Man at some point in the future. And so I've been thinking about like what our bodies can adjust to and adapt to over periods of time. So I think last week we talked about um, this basal metabolic rate and how your body it like can sustain like two point five times burning its BMR worth of calories every single day, like indefinitely. like you can eat enough food to make that work. There's also all this research about injury prevention and training load and saying that like maybe, a 10% increase year over year is about like the maximum that you can safely sustain without being injured. Um, And so I've been kind of like starting to do the math on like, okay, how many hours do I work out? How many hours would I need to work out? And so like based on 10% annual increases, like at what point could I train for this thing? and then also trying to figure out like how many hours of training do you need like some people train for an ironman in 20 hours a week some people train in like 10 hours a week i mean most people will do like a 15 to 18 hour a week before the race but um so yeah i've just been been thinking through some of the math behind like adaptation and just wondering like are we really sure about 10% i mean maybe it's 5% maybe it's 15% like how how have we set like 10% as like this magic number. Cause they tell runners that, like, don't increase your mileage more than 10% week over week. And so part of me wonders if 10% just became like this handy number. And then everyone said, like, how much can I increase? And it's like always 10%. And like, maybe we don't really know that. What do you think, yeah, Laura? When's this whole, when's this Iron I Man th- thing gonna happen?
1: I think that your Iron Man is gonna happen way before mine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, I think in some ways the biggest risk of it not happening is me losing interest or will to pursue it with patience over time. Because like you could, you could do it, like I could do it sooner with a higher risk of injury, but it's like, can you sustain endurance, this level of endurance work, whatever, slowly increasing it over time for like years? So it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating. I think I'm, I think right now I'm two years away, but. Mm-hmm. possibly could probably could probably do it in a year if i really wanted to but spoilers so um what is your current event
1: for us um my current event is there's bipartisan uh work in congress and support from the white house to kind of regulate and control the surprise bills that's oh yeah currently working its way through congress so That's for like when you go to the hospital that is in network, you're seen by the ER by a doctor that is out of network. And then suddenly you have thousands of dollars of bills because you saw a doctor that was out of network, even though you may or may not have been conscious (laughs) enough to give consent to be treated by this doctor because you didn't ask anybody because you were, you know, bleeding out or whatever. And like that doctor wasn't like, I'm sorry, I can't treat you because I... I'm out of network for you. I need to look at your insurance before I can save your life, kind of a thing. Yeah. So, um, where like you have those those bills, surprise bills, where they they are still, like, Currently, the current fix is, appears to be a, a GoFundMe account, and the yeah. other alternative is to get like picked up by a news corporation to have like your <laughs> bill reviewed uh and explained to you after you've you know exhausted all channels through going through like the hospital and their billing and trying to get corrections or whatever and um then they have uh like the local don't waste your money guy come in and look (laughs) at it and they're like well we took we we took we took care of the bill you're you know like you know yeah essentially suddenly it disappears yeah it's it's fine we took care of it you know kind of a thing so um so yeah so Congress, in an act of a very bipartisan way, uh, is working to with both the House and the Senate, kind of working those bills through the um, committees. And right now it appears that the you know White House would be supportive of that, so that I think that'll be a great win cool. for consumers. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that would be a huge win. And I know coll- I mean, colleges, hospitals say they have to pay for things like parking lots and lighting and security that – for example, Medicare doesn't cover, but I see hospitals similar to universities, and that they're providing a service, but sometimes maybe they're not providing it very efficiently. Or I suppose mm-hmm. the hospitals would argue there's so much bureaucratic, you know, process to go through that they can't, or whatever. But you know, I, I feel like most of us look at the current medical system, including people who work in it, and we just know there has to be way. Mm-hmm. Until then, until then, there's bad patients. <laughs> All right, Laura, I think that is enough uh, medical non-practice for me for one week. Do you think we did a good job? (laughs) I think we did a great job. Thanks for listening. All right. (laughs) Thanks. You can rate, share, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your media, and you can send us your topic ideas or questions, which we will research and cover, to hello at badpatient.com. Until next time, we are bad patient.